is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 26th of January. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with the top business stories. US officials said overnight there was growing convergence with the EU on financial sanctions aimed at crippling Russian banks in the event of an invasion of Ukraine. The US and EU are also considering measures to deprive Russia of sensitive technologies along with ways to mitigate the fallout in Europe from the potential loss of Russian energy supplies to the continent, including increasing gas supplies from Qatar and Australia. The International Monetary Fund has slashed its 2022 global growth forecast from 5.9% in 2021 to 4.4% in 2022, with this year's figure being half a percentage point lower than previously estimated. The revised outlook was led by markdowns in the world's two largest economies. The US is expected to grow 4% in 2022, 1.2 percentage points lower than previously forecast as the Fed withdraws its monetary stimulus. China is predicted to grow 4.8% this year, down 0.8 percentage points from earlier estimates because of disruptions caused by zero Covid policy, as well as projected financial stress among its property developers. China's Commerce Ministry said on Tuesday that the foreign trade situation will be grim in 2022 and warned of unprecedented difficulties ahead this year. Li Xingchan, head of Mofcom's foreign trade department, warned some countries are cutting economic stimulus too fast, which will lead to demand contractions and hit exports from Chinese industry this year. And the US Department of Commerce has warned that inventories of semiconductors in the country have fallen to just five days of supply down from 40 days of supplies in 2019. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo warned that U.S. companies were vulnerable to global supply chain disruptions and some manufacturers could be forced to temporarily close. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Alicia Garcia-Herrero from the Tixis, Carlos Casanova at UBP, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk! U.S. stocks made another stunning comeback on Tuesday for the second day in a row as the major indices paired big losses late in the trading session. The Dow was down over 800 points in the morning session before recovering to close 67 points lower at 34,298. On Monday, the Dow plummeted over 1,100 points before rebounding, and it was the first time ever that the Dow has fallen at least 1,000 points but closed in positive territory on the same day. The S&P 500 overnight fought its way back from a 2.8% loss to close down 1.2% at 4,356. Yesterday's decline leaves the S&P down 8.6% in January. And the Nasdaq Composite Index, which was down 3.2% in the morning session, ended the day with losses of 2.3% at 13,539. Shares of Microsoft are up 2.6% in after-hours trading after reporting revenues and earnings that beat expectations. Sales in the quarter ended in Dece- ending in December hit 51.7 billion US dollars, up 20% from a year earlier, and it posted a net income of 18.8 billion dollars, up 21%. 
Revenues from Microsoft's cloud services grew 46%, but that was slower than analysts had forecast. The Pan-European Stock 600 index climbed 0.7%, rebounding partially from a 3.8% drop in the previous session. London's FTSE 100 rose 1%. Stocks in Hong Kong dived the most in two weeks. The Hang Seng Index ended the day 413 points, or 1.7% lower, at 24,244. Chinese tech companies listed in Hong Kong fell once again after the Cyberspace Administration of China announced a one-month clean cyberspace campaign to target online abuse, chaos among celebrity fan groups and other issues. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell for a third straight day, losing 2.6%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 2.6%, falling below 3,500 for the first time since the 11th of November last year. Chinese property developers were in the spotlight once again. Evergrande tumbled 6.5% after it requested bondholders to give the company more time to implement a restructuring plan. And Shimeo has reportedly put 34 projects across China worth over 77 billion yuan that's about 12.2 billion US dollars, up for sale to raise cash to meet debt repayments. Shares of Shimeo surged almost 7% at one stage in Hong Kong before ending the day 1.3% lower. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is at $87.10 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,849 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield is unchanged at 1.78%. And the US dollar is a touch firmer this morning. The euro is trading at $1.13. The bucks at 113.9 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.35 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 52 cents. The offshore Chinese yuan is at 6.33 and a quarter versus the dollar. Bitcoin is trading 1% lower at $36,900. And in Asian stock markets uh, this morning, a bit of a mixed picture. Uh, in Australia, the ASX 200 is down uh, around about 2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea is up about 0.4%. And futures markets pointing to a rise of about 150 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. nine and a half. I don't know what the collective noun for a group of economists is, but we have three of them on the show today. So let's welcome over in our Queensway studio, Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Welcome, Carlos. Hi, good morning. And on the phone, we have Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at the Texas. Morning, Alicia. Good morning. And over in Washington, D.C., we have our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning to you, Barry. Good morning, economists, and include yourself, Peter. Oh, uh, no, no, no. I'm not in such esteemed, <laughs> esteemed company. Carlos, let me kick off with you. I want to ask you about all this volatility uh, that we're seeing in the markets at the moment, particularly uh, US markets. I mean, volatility, higher volatility means more uncertainty. So is this uncertainty being caused by the Fed or is there something more going on here? 
Um, I think the Fed is certainly not helping, um, but we are trying to contextualize this more volatile phase in terms of the business cycle or mini cycles. We are entering a more mature phase of the U.S. Uh, business cycle. You know, we went through a very sharp contraction, a very sharp rebound in activity, and now we're entering a normalization phase, um, which will feature um, slower growth and rising rates. And that is the perfect recipe for higher volatility. So that is uh, panning out as expected. We are seeing a lot of that in the market as investors try to price in um, what the Fed m minutes um, from this month's meeting mean for markets going forward. But, you know, um Markets are supposed to be rational, and here we're seeing volatility, the likes of what we haven't seen since the financial crisis. I mean, investors are supposed to use all the available information. And what they seem to be saying is the discounted cash flows of the U.S. markets are worth a lot less, and then a few hours later worth a lot more than what they're saying. But what's going on? Why, why is this so extreme at the moment? Well, we, we saw a very unprecedented increase in um, monetary support from the U.S. with the Fed balance sheet increasing very rapidly. Um, so inevitably, valuations have um, reached very high levels and it is just not going to be um, a pretty picture, um, you know, reversing that in the coming months. Moreover, the other thing that is happening simultaneously is the fact that the Fed is hiking rates and reducing the size of its balance sheet simultaneously, mm. potentially. And that is something that has not happened in the past. So uh, likely that we will see markets, uh, you know, overreacting as a result of the uncertainty that that generates. Uh, Alicia, there's th we pretty well know, don't we, what the Fed is going to do. They're going to raise rates in March, probably another three or four times this year. What, what, what much more is there to know from the Fed? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure they'll, they'll hike so much because the U.S. economy is indeed decelerating very rapidly. We had mm. terrible retail sales data. We just heard from the IMF that they're bringing down growth, which was, by the way, Disneyland number, what they had before, because already the Fed had 4% a while ago. So, you know, the Fed is very aware that the U.S. economy is decelerating. And more than and in our case, we even go all the way to 3% growth in 2022, because there's a number of factors affecting the U.S. economy negatively beyond what might be discounted already. And this is geopolitics and how, how high oil prices may remain in the light of what we're seeing in Ukraine, and frankly speaking, even U.S.-China competition, which hasn't disappeared whatsoever. So in that regard, I think um, the Fed um, might surprise us in the sense that they may have to... Um, they're not really acknowledged for hikes. It's just the market pushing the Fed, but, but they might have to realize that the U.S. economy is not ready for so many hikes so quickly. This, this is an unusual period, isn't it? Because what we've seen, obviously, the Fed hike rates uh, before um, in, in recent history, but we've not had to deal with a Fed raising rates because of inflation concerns for about 30 years now. So most people can't remember back uh, to that period. Yes, I mean, that's a whole issue. I mean, the Fed is accelerating, and we know that very well because it really matches, you know, the inflation numbers when it reached seven, it's like everybody kind of figured that March would be the date, yeah, for the first hike, meaning it's pushed by inflation. You're absolutely right. The market is pushing on the low end of the curve, not so much on the long end of the curve, if you ask me, because it's still moderate. I mean, it's just low for uh, an economy that actually very low in real terms. You have an economy with 7% inflation, for God's sake, mm. long-term in the age, should be much higher. So, mm. 
The point is the market itself doesn't believe that inflation will remain at that level for very long. And frankly speaking, unless we have a massive disruption in the supply chain beyond what we have had so far, which could happen uh, because of China and Omicron and zero COVID policy, but unless we have that, inflation should come down moderately, not, not massively, but moderately, meaning that the Fed might actually have to rethink given the state of the economy for hikes in a year. Barry, what do you think? Well, I agree with Alicia. I agree with Carlos. I think that uh, we are in a period of volatility. This, this particular hour as we speak is clearly waiting for the Fed. 18 hours from now, we'll know a lot more about Fed policy. But we're in a cycle of tightening, and we are really dependent on what's going to happen in the oil market with COVID and with Ukraine. So there is uncertainty, and that's what we've seen in the market. Do you think that uncertainty is going to be partially cleared up tomorrow after the meeting, after the FOMC meets? I do, actually. I think the Fed has made its, its move very clearly known that they are going to hike. There are, of course, a couple questions that I'm sure that Alicia and Carlos would agree. I mean, are they going to stop the bond buying earlier than March? Uh, are they going to indicate whether there'll be three or four interest rate rises? But on the big picture, they are fighting inflation. So I think that this is a very important press conference from Chairman Powell, and I think the markets will probably uh, respond to that in, a, in the way that they have over the last few days. Okay, let's turn our attention to, to China. China's Commerce Ministry said yesterday that the foreign trade situation will be grim this year. It warned of unprecedented difficulties ahead. Li Xinqian, who's head of Mofcom's foreign trade department, said the faltering global recovery due to COVID outbreaks, supply chain disruptions and rising inflation will affect foreign trade. He also warned that some countries are cutting economic stimulus too fast, which will lead to demand contractions and hit exports from Chinese industry. And Carlos, this appears to be a very gloomy assessment uh, for Mofcom, despite the fact that China's exports and its total trade hit record highs last year. Is this gloominess justified? Um, I think the crux of the question is on that point about foreign countries hiking interest rates too rapidly. Um, <laughs> I think that's the real concern. They here. mean the Fed, don't they? <laughs> so we saw, of course, exports provide a very welcome tailwind on the growth front in 2021. And by the way, a lot of that trade um, surplus that China enjoyed last year can be traced back to US demand. Um, so that is something that will likely um, start to phase out both because of um, uh, moderate, uh, moderating growth in the United States, as we've covered, but also due to the base effect, because um, they exported so much uh, last year. Um, in the second half of this year, that is going to go away. Um, so China is uh, likely nervous about this um, negative base effect and uh, headwind on the export front, in the, especially in the second half of the year, um, and um, should really start to plan ahead in terms of uh, how, how to pivot away from that tailwind on the, on the export front. A lot of officials, including the PBOC, including even President Xi, have raised concerns about uh, the Fed cutting monetary policy, uh, increasing monetary policy too fast and destabilizing the global economy. Why do you think they're so concerned about that? Well, there are various factors. Of course, China is still dependent on U.S. demand, given its role in global value chains. I think the way Chinese authorities are 
looking at it is two interest rate hikes conservative, three interest rate hikes doable, reasonable, four is a policy mistake, could entail uh, a sharper decline in activity in the US, which would impact China. Mm. Um, so that is one factor. The second factor, of course, is on the exchange rate front. We've seen a lot of changes and a lot of regulation and a lot of um, different things being implemented in China, and that's created quite a bit of volatility. Um, I think UN stability and expectations of gradual UN appreciation have been instrumental in ensuring that China can get away with pushing for those reforms. But of course, in a scenario where you have re, you know real rates in the U.S. increasing on the back of you know falling inflation and, and higher ten-year uh, yields, that scenario is worrying for China because it would imply depreciatory pressures on the UN in the second half, and that could create more trouble in the context of uh, all of this regulation. Uh, Alicia, China's exports did hold up very well, didn't they, last year? Uh, maybe surprisingly well, so I suppose a slowdown is, is natural, but um, it, they seem to be very gloomy at the moment about this year. Yes, I, I basically agree with Carlos' comments. I think they are gloomy because exports were the bulk of the growth this year. So if you're not going to have that, uh, you better shape up, and you know it's hard to shape up because the the more the I mean the, the most effective way to shape up, i.e., to create growth domestically, is monetary policy. But that goes counter, as as Carlos mentioned, uh, the ability to attract inflows because the interest rate differential, which we already see now. I mean, the U.S. China uh, Treasury yield differential plummeted of days ago to two point, below 2.7, which is kind mm. of a warning signal. I mean, the level in China of U.S. Uh, of uh, Treasury committed to 2.7. The differential below 100. And, you know, we've been using the good days to something like 300. So, you know, those inflows might not be there, and that's also an issue for, for China. So, so all of this to say, since we're in a market program, that I would be cautious with the renminbi mm. because of many, many factors. There are less push from exports, uh, and, I mean, less support from exports and, and uh, narrowing differential with the U.S., which doesn't vote well for inflows, at least fixed, fixed income inflows. But Barry, the, the phase one trade deal um, expired at the end of December. Uh, it hasn't really brought down the bilateral trade deficits, has it? And in fact, uh, if, if you look at uh, some estimates. Uh, the Peterson Institute says China's only purchased 62% of its targets. Is President Biden coming under pressure to do something about that? Well, he certainly is, and I think he will do more. He's probably going to wait for the Congress, which has got several measures that would punish China. And of course, the whole trade relationship is so vital, but there could be there could be, on the one hand, a lifting of some of the tariffs, or there could be an imposition of new tariffs. Mm. I don't think he's really revealed himself yet. But it seems to me that I will disagree mildly with uh, Alicia on this one. I don't think there's going to be any diminution in Chinese exports to the states. We're really hooked on those products. And unless our growth rate really falls off, uh, that record, what was it, a 30% increase in Chinese exports into the state in, 19, in, in 2021, I think there's going to be a in further increase in 2022. However, it does seem to me that the real issue that came out of the International Monetary Fund today is that they're projecting China's growth rate will, will almost fall in half 
from 8% growth in 2021 to 4.8% in in 2022. That must cause some concern. Mm. Carlos, what do you think could be done to sort of reconcile the uh, the shortcomings in the, in the trade deal and maybe boost uh, uh, future relations between the, the US and China in this year and beyond? Mm. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not so optimistic about the, the second part of your question in terms of boosting. I think I will agree with Alicia that um, geopolitical risks are likely going to be continue to be a driver of volatility in the markets. Um, the trade deal, um, I don't think there's much they can they can do there. The, although the trade surplus is structural, um, as Barry was mentioning, um, you know it is not possible for China to to meet um, the the conditions under the trade deal and um, import uh, imposing tariffs on Chinese imports uh, at this point in time when inflation is high is just counterproductive for the U.S. economy. You're so right. We, we think they're going to pivot away from trade and towards uh, potentially restricting access um, to U.S. technology and U.S. capital markets. Um, but there's, I think for, for me personally, geopolitical risks is something that, that worries me going forward. So I would be with Alicia there that it's probably one of the things that will drive volatility. Barry, you was about to say? No, I think uh, I, I agree with that. Look, there's so much uncertainty. I mean, clearly we have very tense relations between the United States and China. And uh, the only thing that is positive is on the economic front, the trade relationship has been pretty steady. Now, of course, Carlos is right to, to mention high tech. These are question marks. And I don't think it's known which way the United States is going to shift in the next few months. Uh, Alicia, there's also this drive uh, to try and diversify from these China-centric uh, global supply chains, particularly given the US-China rivalry and also the regulatory crackdown uh, that we're seeing on many um, sectors. Where in Asia would you look if you wanted to try and diversify and, and what economies in Asia maybe could you be optimistic about, about trade growing for them in the coming year? Thank you. So we're just we just published a report yesterday on exactly this topic, and we focus on the supply of uh, quality uh, labor, meaning we look at both amount of labor, I mean, to be able to compete with China, second, quality, I mean, uh, in terms of education, and also regulations for to attract FDI and wages. So, so basically, in a nutshell, uh, India is by far the best option um, for um, labor-intensive uh, uh, manufacturing FDI. And, of course, one could argue that's going to take time, you know, the regulatory environment, surely, but I think it's a given that at some point in time, India will become a manufacturing um, power. And for higher-end manufacturing, including semiconductors and ICT in general, uh, we point to Malaysia. Our second report looking at infrastructure, because of course you can't do all of this without infrastructure, especially transport and communications infrastructure, and that's where India kind of falls from the cliff uh, because of its massive need. So, so India is like, to me, like a long-term bet. Why Malaysia, which stands out in, in, in infrastructure, the, the best in, in some cases, even better than China in our in our ranking, uh, clearly shows uh, possibilities in the short run. That would mm. be my my time. By the way, Vietnam, who many have invested in, doesn't rank very well in either of the two. Better in infrastructure than in 
quality of labor supply. And, and the thing that links those economies that you mentioned there, Alicia, is that unlike China, uh, they've got growing populations and young populations. That's right. That's the, that's the essence of the cold, meaning that we even calculate how many, you know, how many um, working uh, labor force will be de- deducted from China, supposed to increase elsewhere to up 200 million in India, for example, just coming coming up. But that means huge investment in, in infrastructure, of course, to accommodate those people and make them a solution rather than a problem. Mm. Carlos, I want to ask you about Hong Kong. Uh, because we got uh, uh, the first estimate of GDP being released on Friday, um, they're, they're expected to show that the economy moderated slightly in the fourth quarter, declining from 5.4% in the third quarter. But the key, I guess, is what's going to happen from here, because it looks like the economy is going to slow markedly in the first quarter of this year because of the social distancing measures. Paul Chan's going to forecast uh, that, uh, that the economy grew 6.4% last year, or he has, but I'm seeing economists forecasting just 1% growth for the first quarter of this year, and I've even seen some forecasting a recession uh, for Hong Kong now. What are your thoughts? Mm, that's right. So, uh, actually, our growth forecast for 2021, which was a Goldilocks, Goldilocks scenario for Hong Kong uh, GDP, um, is higher than Paul Chan's. It's 6.5%. Um, however, we are expecting uh, more weakness in Q1 and in Q2. Um, likely, in the first quarter, you will see a contraction in sequential terms, um, um, given the fact that they you know, have basically after 6 p.m. everything is closed, so that's going to have a dent on consumption. Um, if this um, zero-COVID uh, situation lasts longer um, into Q2, um, and especially uh, you know, if we see uh, an increase in, in COVID cases, um, which is the case right now, I'm not sure if, if this will continue um, in April, um, but that will mean that they will continue to have restrictive measures in place in Q2. So second quarter of contraction, meaning a recession. So we, we can't exclude the possibility of a recession in the first half of the year uh, and a stabilization in the second half. But what is clear is that the consensus is not pricing in weaker activity in Q1 and in Q2 this year. So we do expect some downside risks um, for the year of 2022 that has not yet been priced in the market. Alicia, what are your thoughts for Hong Kong? Well, we had before Omicron already 1.8 pros uh, for 2022, and the reason is that that's what Hong Kong potential growth really is. Meaning, uh, I mean, 2022 showed the rebound from two years in recession, mm. and, and and that added to the stimulus that uh, the Hong Kong government put on the table, even for consumption, well, to get to where we are today, which very high growth for Hong Kong standards. But 2022 wasn't meant to be the same year. Now, with Omicron, uh, you can imagine that that might be even an overstatement unless uh, they take action. We've seen a very meager uh, support for uh, for targeted, uh, I would say, SMEs or, or sectors, yeah, like, like uh, consumer-related sectors that are so, so small that that's not going to change a gloomy picture for 2022. Barry, final word from you. The Fed is meeting. Um, We're going to get the decision from the FOMC in the early hours of tomorrow morning, uh, Hong Kong time. What should we be looking out for? Well, that is a tough one. And I'll take a guess. I won't run away from that question, Peter. Look, I think that um, they're going to say that the fight is against inflation. 
and they're going to indicate uh, that there will be uh, at least three interest rate rises. I think they will move to curtail the bond buying program, and I think, and this is where I'm really out on a on a long limb. I think the market's going to like it. Okay, well, let's hope so. Thank you very much. That's our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, in Washington, D.C. You also heard Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP, and Alicia Garcia Herrero, who's chief economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets this morning, the uh, Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about a third of a percent. Stocks in South Korea moving in the opposite direction, up about two-thirds of a percent. Uh, looks like we're going to see um, a small rebound for the Hang Seng, or maybe a modest, uh, a bit better rebound for the Hang Seng now, about 150 points or so at the open. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil is trading at uh, $87.10 a barrel. Gold right now is at $1,849 an ounce. Back chat's coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Anna Fenton and the weather forecast for today. Going to be mainly cloudy with sunny intervals, one or two rain patches in the morning and at night. Maximum temperature of about 20 degrees and then mainly cloudy in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 18 degrees and it's 87% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andy Shorosky with the half-hour news. Health authorities say they found two preliminary positive cases after an overnight lockdown at number 21 to 35 Hong Kong Street in Tokawan, where they tested about 190 people. No new COVID-19 cases were found during an overnight lockdown at Wai Chun House in Sham Shui Po. The lockdowns were ordered after officials detected one case of COVID-19 involving a mutant strain in each building. Health officials have evacuated more than a dozen households from residential block in Chunwan Garden after identifying possible vertical virus transmissions there. Joanne Wong reports. Two residents of Glory Court, living in Unit Number 5 on the 12th floor and the roof, have come down with COVID-19. Speaking after inspecting the building, Dr. Albert Au from the Center for Health Protection said officials suspect the coronavirus might have been transmitted via a sewer vent pipe leading up to the roof. The authorities say they're sending to quarantine those living in Unit 5 from the 4th floor upwards, as well as residents of Unit 4 from the 16th floor upwards. Other residents of the building have to undergo mandatory testing. The International Monetary Fund has downgraded its forecast for the global economy. It's trimmed half a point off global growth, saying the world's two biggest economies, the United States and China, won't be immune. Economist Gita Gopinath explained the reasoning behind that projection. We project global growth this year at 4.4%, which is 0.5 percentage point lower than previously forecast mainly because of downgrades for the United States and China. But India and Japan are forecast to buck the trend, although the IMF says Omicron will continue to be a drag on growth. It added another key challenge facing the global economy is the surge in prices, especially for energy and for food. The Pentagon says it continues to consult with NATO allies about their military needs and desires, and it's not ruling out additional U.S. troop overseas deployments in response to the heightened tensions over Russia's military presence on the Ukrainian border. The Pentagon spokesman is John Kirby. We are still in active consultation with allies and partners about um, 
uh, about capabilities they might need and, and might desire, uh, but no decisions have been made about sending anything in terms of you know, significant air defense systems or or, uh, or weapons. The other thing I'd say is I'm not going to rule out the possibility that there will be more such uh, direction given to additional units at home or even abroad in terms of their readiness posture. Moscow has denied it's planning to invade Ukraine, but it has amassed an estimated 100,000 troops near Ukraine in recent weeks and is holding military drills at multiple locations in Russia. That's led the United States and its NATO allies to rush to prepare for a possible